Hello friends, family of God, it's so good to join with you in worship today. We're gonna start with a reading from Psalm 95. It says this, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. We're gonna do that today. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. The word of the Lord, this is the good news, friends, that the sovereign king, the one who rules over all, the great God that we just read about, he doesn't just hold the mountains, he doesn't just hold the seas, he holds each and every one of us. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So as his people is joined in thanksgiving today, let's lift our eyes to our good shepherd, our protector, the one who watches over us. Let's give it thanks and praise today. Come on, let's praise wherever you are. Oh, we lift up a hallelujah to our God. Our Savior is alive. Our King is alive. Oh! 
Yes, Lord, we raise a hallelujah, the highest praise to the one who's worthy, our strong tower, our mighty fortress, our refuge. We run to you, God. We rest in your presence today. We trust in who you are. You're faithful. You're strong. Never failing. We're here to honor you, to sing a little louder to you, God. To bless your name. God from God, light from light. We believe in one Jesus Christ. Breaking through the darkest of nights to say, You alone can save. Hope of hope, strength of strength. All our sin is dead in the grave. And only one has power enough to save. out to him and say
declare it. When no one else can reach us, you find us where there is no way you make a way. We believe when no one else can reach us, you find us where there is no way you make a way. When no one else can reach us, you find. space of the presence of the Lord. I want to encourage you just to maybe even put your hands like this. I want to sing a song over you. It's a blessing. And just, you know, if you're, maybe if you're sat down, maybe stand and do this, or maybe if you're standing up, maybe sit and do this. Just some sort of posture that receives because we know that the Lord wants to speak to you. The Lord wants to say something to you. Lord, turn His face toward you. 
want you just to hold this posture of worship and openness right now. There's a reason that this song is such a powerful song. It comes right out of scripture. Moses is instructing the priests in the Old Testament and he says that when you bless the Israelites, say it like this. He says, say the Lord bless you and keep you. Say, may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And Moses says, in this way, you're going to put the name of God on the Israelites and God will bless them. And that blessing is put to the test later in the book of Numbers. There's a Midianite king, Balak, who is terrified of the Israelites. And so he hires this prophet, Balaam, son of Beor. And he says, hey, Balaam, I'm terrified of these Israelites here. Would you put a curse on them? And Balaam says, listen, man, I can only say what God says to me. So I'll go talk to God and I'll let you know what he says. And seven times, Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, listen, man, God has blessed these people. And if he's blessed them, I can't curse them. In one notable moment, Numbers 23, the scripture says, then he spoke this message, arise, Balak, and listen to me. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie. And he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I, oh, get this. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I can't change that. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel for the Lord, their God is with them. And the shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt and they've got the strength of a wild ox. Verse 23, there's no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and Israel, see what God has done. See friend, the blessing is more fundamental than the curse. And we know that because Jesus Christ was God's blessing in the flesh, God's blessing incarnate. And he took the curse upon himself and his body and rose again indestructible. And that means that there is blessing afoot in God's world. And so wherever you are right now, home, apartment, dorm room, sitting in your car, just receive right now. Just receive, open your hands, and we pray the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon you. We pray the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ upon you. We're praying it over your finances, and we're praying it over your health, and we're praying it over your children, and we're praying it over your businesses, and we're praying it over your relationships, and we're praying it over the cities that you live in. We're saying, Lord Jesus, let your blessing engulf the curse again. Raise us up, raise us up in your strength. Oh, all of that we're asking in your mighty and victorious name. Grant it, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. As we prepare to receive our tithes and offerings today, we remember that what it means to be a blessed people, people blessed of the Lord, is that we use our strength to be a blessing to others. And as we've remained faithful in our tithes and offerings here at New Life Church, we have been a blessing to our city and to people beyond our city. We've given away five tons of food, helping our local ministry partners. People are being served by your strength. So give and give generously today. It's making a difference in God's world. Lord Jesus, here we are. Take these gifts, use them to bless and strengthen your world. We're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are three ways to give. You can give online, you can text to give, or you can mail in your offering. Let's continue to worship as we give. Lift us up one more time. He's faithful. He's faithful. 
scriptures so please lean in press in grab your bibles grab your notebooks lean into the word of the lord grace and peace new life east happy sunday morning to you the grace of god and the love of our lord jesus christ the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you. It's good to worship together with you this Sunday morning. We're starting a new series this morning on the book of James, uh, one of the most fantastic books of the New Testament, an incredibly uh, practical book and also deeply theological book, kind of in its own way. I'm excited to preach through it because I think so much of what it says uh, really is addressed quite perfectly. It's calibrated perfectly to our moment. Let me give you a little bit of background on James, and then I'm going to pray and we'll get started here. Uh, but James, the author uh, of the book of James, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we call him the half-brother, of course, because Jesus was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. But James grew up with Jesus. It's fun to think about those two kind of wrestling together and getting into it with each other. But he had deep proximity to the Lord Jesus, and we call him James the Just because he was known for his piety. And one of the things that will shine through in the letter as we start to look at it is just how deeply pious and godly James is. James was known for his deep life of prayer. He was known for fasting. He was known for almsgiving. He was known for his care for the poor. And so as a leader of the church, that really comes through in the way that he led. He was also, as it happens, the leader of the Jerusalem Council, that we read about in Acts 15. So James 
was not one of this James the Just, was not one of the followers of Jesus during his earthly life. It seems that he had a conversion experience shortly after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended. And that quickly sort of put him in this status as a great leader in the church. So Acts chapter 15, we read about his leadership. Some context for you. Uh, the book of James opens with this line, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That can mean a lot of different things, but some scholars think that probably the folks that James is addressing are Jewish Christians of the diaspora. So Jews that had been scattered across Asia Minor and had become believers. James has a unique authority with them. And so he's writing to churches that sprouted up in those places that had high concentrations of Jewish people, a little bit of date and circumstance. You can date the book different ways, but some scholars think that this is maybe the earliest writing of the New Testament in the mid 40s, probably, which is very interesting, I think, to think about because when you start reading James then, one of the things that you don't see is kind of the high-flying theology of the Apostle Paul. You see things that are much more kind of on the ground and practical in a way what you're glimpsing here in the book of James is you're glimpsing sort of the lived piety of the early churches, that texture and ethos of the early church. What did it look like? Well, James is giving us kind of a window into that. The folks that James is writing to seem to be enduring a difficult time, which comes to the fore quite quickly in James chapter one, possibly persecution for being Christians. And then they're experiencing a great amount of tension between the rich and the poor. So this is a book that's very practical, actually, and very now, even though it was written about 2,000 years ago. Now, uh, not everybody in the history of Christianity has loved the book of James. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it an epistle of straw. Uh, Martin, why don't you tell us what you really think about the book of James? He called it an epistle of straw because in Luther's opinion, when you read through James, you don't see again that kind of high-flying, beautiful theology of Paul. You see things that are much more practical. And so he thought this is just a worthless Book, But one of the things that, and this is something that we have to pay attention to as we read and preach and receive James, is that James has these moments where tucked into it are the realities of the new birth. And the realities of the new birth in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, they fuel his ethical exhortations. So James chapter 1 verse 18, James says that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Well, who's the word of truth? It's Jesus. He chose to give us birth through the word of tru truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So if we had to sort of epitomize the teaching of James, we might say that James is trying to teach the churches that he's overseeing how to walk in their identity as the people that they already are. In other words, they already are the first fruits of the new creation. They already have been made alive by the Spirit. They already have been born again. They already have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. And so James is constantly saying, given that those things are true, how are you gonna live now? What are you gonna do? What is God calling you to be? And with that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer and just ready ourselves to receive the Word. Lord Jesus, we say, whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail us, but you are the strength of our heart 
in our portion forever. We thank you that in this moment, wherever we are, that what you're doing is you're taking the scriptures and you're blessing them and you're breaking them and you're using them to feed us. This has become for us and is becoming for us the very bread of life. So we pray that as we feast on the scriptures here, that we'd find ourselves challenged and exhorted and comforted and lifted up into the light of your glory and your salvation and your love. Grant that we're asking. I am asking this morning that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. James chapter one. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, he says, greetings. The Greek word for greetings there is charein. It's the word that we get joy from. He's extending grace. He's extending joy to them right out of the gate. And that figure is because then he says, he pivots right here in verse two, consider it, he says, pure joy. Wherever you're listening to this, I want you to say pure joy real loud, pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you, what? Well, whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy uh, when your bank account is full, no. Consider it pure joy when your body is working the way they should, no. Consider it pure joy when relationships are all harmonious and everything is wonderful, no. Consider it pure joy when everything is just going exactly the way that you want it, no. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when? Whenever you face, what? Trials of many kinds. Uh, the Greek is kind of interesting here for many kinds of trials. It's a word that basically means, means all species and all sorts of trials. So like anything bad that could possibly happen to you, any misfortune, this is an encouraging book, isn't it? any misfortune that could possibly fall on you, anything unfortunate that could happen to you, anything painful that might come to you. James goes, whatever it is, many kinds, all species of trials, consider it pure joy when you fall into them. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith is developing something. It produces perseverance. And so here's my encouragement to you. He says, you need to let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, all grown up all the way and complete. In other words, you have integrity in who you are, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he says, you better ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And when you ask, you better believe, don't doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And we all said, thanks be to God. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The Bible knows about difficulty, okay? The Bible knows about struggle. The Bible knows about hardship. The Bible knows about challenge. The Bible is not a sanitized book and it's not full of the lives of people who just had everything work out, everything work according to plan. The Bible is not that book. The Bible is a book that includes stories of women like Hagar, who was mistreated by Sarah and she fled into the desert and she lifted her heart up into the promises of God and God met her in the wilderness. It's filled with stories like that. The Bible knows about hardship. The Bible knows about a guy like Joseph who was mistreated by his brothers and 
Ultimately, he was taken into slavery and thrown into prison and all kinds of misfortune happened to him. Things that he did not deserve and did not earn, those things fell upon him. The Bible knows about those things. The Bible knows about poor Leah. I mean, you remember the story, Jacob fell in love with Rachel and on the wedding night, uh, the father, Jacob's soon-to-be father-in-law, he switches his daughters. He puts the older, oldest daughter, Leah, in the tent with Jacob. And Leah, the scripture says, was unloved. She winds up bearing the lion's share of the promised family, the 12 sons of Jacob. She's unloved. The Bible knows about that. Okay, the Bible knows about Moses, which is minding his own business on the backside of the desert. And he gets called in to face down the mightiest nation that the world had ever seen. And that people that he delivers up out of Egypt, the Israelites, are a cantankerous and treacherous group of people to try to lead. The Bible knows all about that. The Bible knows about David, David who was anointed with oil as the king of Israel. And what did he do to, he wasn't look, out looking for that. He wasn't asking for it, but God called him out. And being called out by God, being anointed by the Lord actually throws him into difficulty. Saul goes into a crazy rage. The Bible knows about that. The Bible knows about the fiery ordeal of Job. Have you ever read the book of Job? Job was the most righteous man that the world had ever seen until Jesus, the way that the book of Job opens, describes him as the quintessential righteous person. And there's a bet that goes on in the heavenlies between Yahweh and the adversary. And that bet that goes on in the heavenlies results in Job losing everything. His life is burned to the ground and he didn't deserve it. And he wasn't looking for it. It wasn't his fault. The Bible knows about difficulty. It knows about the difficulty of the prophets who tucked themselves into the very being and the heart of God. And they felt God's love and they felt God's pain and they felt God's passion for the world. And they arose inside of Israel and they brought the heart of God to the people of God and they were stoned and they were sawed in two and they were rejected and thrown outside for it. The Bible knows about hardship and difficulty and challenge. It knows that in this world, according to Jesus, we will have trouble. We will have trouble. And it doesn't duck that and it doesn't deny it and it doesn't give us an easy escape route. And the question that it puts to us is this, will we discern the invitation of the spirit in our troubles, okay? Will we discern the invitation of the spirit in our trouble? See, it's not just saying that God threw this hard thing on you or God put this bad thing. It's not just giving you a simple answer for that. It wasn't just that the almighty decided to visit a calamity upon you. It's not doing that. What it's doing is something much more nuanced and much more subtle. It's saying, will we discern the invitation of the spirit in our troubles? Will we receive the trials that we're walking through as tests, tests designed to grow us and designed to strengthen us. Of course, we all know what tests are designed to do. Tests are desi designed both to bring out what's already there and also to strengthen in us what's good and true, preparing us for what is to come. That's what a test is designed to do. When I was 13 years old, uh, most of you know I grew up in central Wisconsin, and so they do a lot of hunting up there. I wasn't like a, a very ambitious young hunter, but most of my extended family on the art side, they all are big hunters. And so my dad, when I was 13 years old, he wanted me to go to hunter safety class. And so week after week after week, I sat in hunter safety class and I did not love it very much, but I did it dutifully because this is the thing that you do. 
if you grow up in central Wisconsin. So I'm in hunter safety class and I'm doing my best and trying to focus real hard on what are the parts of the gun and what should you do with it and what shouldn't you do with it and how do you hold it and all that stuff. And then the night came where we all take the test. And will I pass the test and be admitted into the guild of mighty hunters? That is the Arndt family, you know? And so I went in and the test took about 30 minutes or so. And I thought, I just on my life, I would have sworn that I aced the test. And when I got done, I remember talking to the instructor and I said, how did I do? And he said, you failed the test. How could I fail the test? He goes, well, as you were doing your thing, I saw at least a half a dozen occasions when your finger was supposed to be on the safety and it went onto the trigger and you could get somebody killed doing that. And I, what? I burst into tears and I run out in the parking lot and my parents are sitting out there and they're waiting for a good report, you know, and I give them this bad report and they're embarrassed and I'm embarrassed and it's terrible. What was the guy teaching me? What was he saying? He was saying, listen, son, like you are not ready to go out into the wild wielding this thing. You failed the test. The test is designed to bring out what is there and also strengthen in you what is good which means that on some level, tests are critical for us. It's inevitable that we're gonna walk through them and we will not become the people that God has designed us to be unless we avail ourselves of the test, which is why here James says, why, why? Why should you count it all joy? Why are you gonna regard it as a good thing that you walk through many kinds, varied species of trials? He says this in verse three, look down. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and you let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We want the house of your life, the home of your life, the structure of your life to be sound like this building that I'm in is sound. It needs to have structural integrity and the only way it can do that, the only way it can achieve that as if it passes through the fires, if it receives the trials as tests. I'm going on 39 years old this summer. I've been walking with Jesus my whole life and I've been through so many of these. And whenever you're in them, it's not always easy to discern. Is this just a bad thing that's happening to me? Is this something that I did to put myself here? Or is this something that's coming directly from the hand of God? But the thing is you have to discern the invitation of the spirit in it. You have to discern, we'll never figure out the cause of the hard things that we're walking through. There's too many causes. But what we can do is we can discern the hand of God. And I remember one of the moments when this was driven home to me quite profoundly was when I was in college. And I just remember I went through a long and agonizing trial in college. It was a number of things that I felt like had conspired together to kind of keep me in this place that just felt really hard and really depressing and really difficult. And I just did not, for the life of me, I could not figure out what God was doing and where he was leading me and where, where is this whole thing going, Lord? Like, what is the point of all this? And I, I sensed your call and I, I had it in my heart. I had a deep sense of what, I, what the future was supposed to be, what God was asking me into, but I just couldn't figure out how my life at that moment fit inside of it. It felt like I was on this massive detour, very confusing, very vexing. And I decided, I think I was about a junior or so in college, I decided that I was gonna go on a long fast just to humble myself before the Lord, to get some wisdom and clarity and to try to lock in to what God was doing and what God was saying over my life. And I remember during that long fast, 
I was reading through the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and just thinking through Israel's story. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever made the connection that when God delivered his people up out of Egypt, you know, the promised land is actually not that far away. It may be 10, 11, 12 day journey. If you just go straight there, you can get right into the promised land. And yet the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Well, what is happening for 40 years in the wilderness? But God is putting them through tests. He's putting them through trials. He's strengthening their character. He's deepening who they are. He's teaching them his ways so that when they get into the promised land, they can sustain a life there because they've deeply internalized who God is. And I finally made the connection that this long and circuitous route that Israel had taken to get to the promised land 40 years, that that was actually central to what God was trying to do to grow Israel up into the image and the stature of God, to make Israel a true son of God. And I remember when that moment clicked for me of seeing that. I remember I was on my knees one morning, just reading through the text and submitting myself to the Lord. And I heard the Holy Spirit say it this clearly. And it was exactly like this. And it was this clear. If it had been audible, it wouldn't have been more clear to me. The Lord said to me, son, you have desired the end of this season but I am not done using it to change you. And you need to let my spirit do a deeper work of faith in you so that your character will be able to sustain you in the places that your gifts will take you. That's what this is for. That when God leads us into and through the fiery ordeal, what he's trying to do is he's trying to deepen something in us. He's trying to push the pillars of our life, deeper into the soil of the word of God. He's trying to make the structure of who we are more sound and more complete so that in the things that he calls us into, we can sustain it. We can hold up under it. Our lives, to invoke the words of Jesus, they're built firmly on the rock. We've got the kingdom internalized in us so that when the wind and the waves come to us, we're not knocked off balance by it, which is why James says, consider it all joy. When you fall into any kinds of trials and temptations, all that stuff, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Trials are a principal method God uses to grow and to shape us. If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews chapter five and verse seven. The writer of Hebrews says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. But see, that's the whole thing. Son though he was, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You say, son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered, made perfect. What? Wasn't he already always the eternal and perfect son of God? Yes, he was, he was. But that identity as the son of God had to be actualized in the human flesh of Jesus. And there was no way for that to happen, but by Jesus walking through trials and tribulations and offering up loud cries and petitions, that in those moments, what happened was his divine identity as the eternal son of God, that that was actualized in his flesh 
And the writer of Hebrews says that because Jesus endured and persevered through that, all of a sudden he becomes the source of eternal salvation. That there is life that's racing through Jesus because of what he endured, which is why James goes on to say in James 1 and verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Brothers and sisters, this morning I am saying to you, that God is working good things inside the trial. And he is not tempting you to evil. That's what James goes on to say. When tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters, James says. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Brothers and sisters, God has not designed evil for you. He is not setting you up to fail That is not the father heart of our God. That is not what he does. Yes, he designs tests that strengthen us and grow us. But no, he is not setting us up for failure. And his spirit is in us. The spirit of the self-same Jesus Christ who persevered through all of his trials is in us. And it's working the Christ life out in us. And so what we do when we're in the middle of difficult things is we open up our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for the wisdom that comes from above. We ask for discernment to understand what God is doing and how he's speaking us. We want to receive the fire of the spirit that burns away so much that needs to be burned away so that we might become that kind of first fruits of all that he's created. And so now I want to invite you to come to the table. You see, when we come to the table of the Lord, the thing that we're remembering, the thing that we're remembering is that there's no way for us to endure to the end, but that the life of Jesus takes up residence in us and the persevering one, the faithful one, Christ the Lord, works out his life in us. And so with the bread and the cup in your hand, Lord Jesus, we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. The body of Christ. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for feeding us. We give you thanks for strengthening us. We give you thanks that you're imparting life to us even now. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, After that, you took the cup and you lifted up the cup and you blessed it. And you said, take all of you and drink from this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, the cup of salvation, let's take together. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow 
that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We thank you that here and now, you have and you are feeding us with your very presence, cleansing us with your blood, strengthening us to endure. And so now I pray over my brothers and sisters as they depart into their week. New Life East, I'm saying over you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You are loved. We'll see you next week.